Midlands Today on Midlands 183 with O'Brien's Mullingar. It's official Westmeath. No county loves Renault more. P.O.Brien.ie When people in the Midlands want to talk, they talk to Will Faulkner. Well, good morning. Happy Friday. It's off to a nice start weather-wise in many parts of the Midlands. Unfortunately, uh, not going to last. Those blustery showers going to be a bit of an issue very soon. Now, coming up today, the man who hopes to swim the length of the River Shannon in just two weeks. How do you even train for a challenge like that? Also today... The dad who killed his own children found dead in a cell in Portlaoise. The investigation begins. And is there a better way to pay for childcare? Because at the moment, the money comes from parents with a small state contribution. How would a state-funded model work and how much would it cost? That's up for discussion after 10. When you call, 0818 300 103 is my number. You can text or WhatsApp 083 30 10 103, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. So, let's see what's happening around the region and around the world on the front of the star. See my husband dies, it says. The man who murdered his wife and his two children, according to the star, has taken his own life in prison. Uh, the Independent reports that he was found in an unresponsive condition at three o'clock yesterday afternoon. Other papers also reporting on the story, but the Star suggests it was a suicide, according to their sources. Uh, that has not been said officially by the Irish Prison Service. Uh, no third party involvement is suspected, but all the Prison Service has said on the record is that they confirm the death of a prisoner in the Midlands prison and all deaths in custody are investigated not alone by the prison service but the inspector of prisons and on Garda Corner, where circumstances warrant and the cause is determined by the coroner's office. So the, the background to this is, is deeply, deeply tragic and upsetting um, he was to go on trial next week for the murder in South Dublin of his wife, Seema Banu, and their two children, Asfira, who was 11, and Faizan, who was only six. And that happened in October of 2020. And a source quoted in the Star says, he took the coward's way out. Anyway, upsetting story on the Irish Daily Star today. The main story on The Independent, families now face biggest squeeze in a decade. Gosh, they're really, really pouring on the bad news today. So not alone have you had inflation to contend with and oil prices going up for heating your home, for driving your car, and indeed the food on the shelf becoming more expensive because of a combination of reasons, Ukraine not being the least of them. 
Now the European Central Bank has increased its rate by a quarter of 1% from July, but is also signalling another rate increase in September. Right now, a quarter of 1% again, but it could be half a percent. And the reason this matters is your mortgage and the interest you pay will be linked to the ECB in some way. So that now puts other pressures on government. If you flick over to the Irish Examiner today, they've talked to various ministers on and off the record. And the feeling is it will be extremely difficult politically to resist intervening in the cost of living crisis before October's budget. The country is being hit by a perfect storm, says one minister, and we cannot stand idly by. And indeed, when the main opposition party, Sinn Féin, is calling for a mini-budget and all of these events conspire to put more and more pressure on your own personal finances, the expectations just grow and grow and grow. Uh, for the record, though, Pascal Donoghue, the finance minister, who was interviewed at a NAMA event yesterday, says the government will not consider price controls or price caps on any measures to tackle soaring prices. So no limit on the cost of fuel, for instance, no cap on the amount of rent, no limits to the interest rates banks can charge mortgage holders. Anyway, moving on. Big news coming out of the United States in the last 24 hours as a congressional committee investigates the attack on the US Capitol on the 6th of January of last year in which many, many people were injured. And in a public hearing last night, the committee was told there would be evidence that then-President Donald Trump had suggested that his vice-president, Mike Pence, deserved to be hanged. And it also suggests Mr. Trump had been told by very senior advisers, including his attorney general, that there was no basis for his claim of fraud in the election. And that, in effect, what happened at the Capitol building was the culmination of an attempted coup. Very serious allegations that Mr. Trump is facing. That's in the Irish Times, if you wish to read more. Now, back to the cost of living. Tourists coming to Ireland are being asked to pay ridiculous sums of money to rent a car. We've highlighted a, a couple of cases recently, but there may be a solution. Cora Creed moved from Kerry to the United States more than 30 years ago, and now she wishes to come back. And she and her husband were quoted €6,500 to rent a Ford Focus or an Opel Astra for three months. Not as bad as some of the quotes we've heard, but still very, very steep. Six and a half grand for a car for three months. I mean, why don't you, why don't you just buy one? Um, the reason in her case is to do with uh, her licence being in the US, getting insurance on a car of her own, etc. So, hence she has to rent. But she discovered if she inquired north of the border, she could secure a car for €1,500 Euro less over the three months. So still expensive, but there are definite savings to be made if you rent a car north of the border rather than south. And the problem that presents 
Northern Ireland has some pretty attractive tourism options. Look at the Giant's Causeway, look at the Mountains of Moher, look at some of the fantastic beaches and amenities, Newcastle and Port Rush and so on. You can be absolutely sure the Northern Irish Tourism Board will jump on this and it is going to damage tourism here in the Republic unless the powers that be sort it out. Anyway, that's on the Irish Independent today. Owen Reddy, though, not missing a trick, ready to drive cars in Monaster Evan. He's just posted on Facebook. No need to rent a car for 18 grand in July. We at Ready to Drive have cars you can buy from €3,500. Good man, Owen. Never waste a moment for publicity. Here's a fascinating one. You know how plastic is one of the scourges of this world and there's a floating mountain of plastic in the Pacific Ocean that is just to the disgrace of humanity. Well, scientists have discovered superworms that can digest polystyrene. In fact, these larvae of the darkling beetle, they quite like it. They put on a good bit of weight eating plastic and this could be one of the ways in which we dispose of our plastic in an environmentally friendly fashion into the future. Could it revolutionise plastic recycling? Let's hope so. Anyway, if you're interested, it's in the journal Microbial Genomics, which of course is a bestseller in your local news agents, isn't it? Microbial Genomics. Hilary Fanning has investigated some of the uh, great fads of the world in trying to prevent ageing because she recently turned 60 and she writes in the Irish Times about some of the effects of turning 60. And anyway, she's taken a fascination in Gwyneth Paltrow and Gwyneth has various products that she's promoting to allegedly stave off Father Time. So some of these have been put to the test. And, well, one that actually stands up is sauerkraut. If you wish to be sexy and nimble into your 60s, you have to eat lots of sauerkraut. Never even tasted sauerkraut. Oh, and you have to drink filtered water as well. And, and maybe a few tomatoes and garlic and onions and radishes and leeks and asparagus and Jerusalem artichokes. That's the recipe for a, a, a fine period of life uh, from Gwyneth Paltrow. Um, what else does she suggest? Yeah, yeah, exercise, obvious one. Oh yes, your microbiome. So you need to have plenty of belly bubbling bacteria. And uh, do we really have time for this? I don't think so. If you're curious, it is in the Irish Times. Gwyneth Paltrow's way of being uh, live and sprightly and fit into later life. Not sure she exactly is an authority on that. What age is she? Late 40s? Anyway. And finally, in the gossip columns, Brittany Spears has gotten married again. She has tied the knot to her longtime partner, Sam Asgari. And the couple had gotten engaged last September. All of this, of course, comes after the controversial conservatorship was terminated late last year. And as she's had a rough time, Lately, she's suffered a miscarriage and 
It looked like everything was going her way until that happened, but she's bouncing back now and she's gotten married. And the big, of course, story on all of the gossip sites is that her first husband showed up and tried to gate-crash the wedding in a very dramatic way and he was arrested and he was brought off. And Anyway. Aye. Shall we move on to more important things? When people in the Midlands want to talk, they talk to Will Faulkner. Midlands 103. Now, when most people take an interview on this programme, they may have to step out of an office beforehand or pull over the car or sneak away from the kids. You know, normal stuff. Aidan Sheridan, good morning. Good morning, Will. How are you? Very well. Where are you at the moment? Uh, I'm in Carmore getting a, a VO2 max test on my cardiovascular system to improve me fitness towards the swim. And what were you doing only a few minutes ago? I was sprinting on a treadmill. Right, right, right. I've found a bit out of breath, I'm very sorry. Why? We've gone longer than I thought. Uh, why are you putting yourself through this, Aidan? Uh, well, the, the story goes that uh, I'm swimming the length of the Shannon in July for my brother Mark because he passed away from cancer a couple of years back. Ah dear, ah dear. So that, that's why I, I took on the challenge to swim the, the Shannon from Dowra County Cavan down to Limerick City. At what age was Mark? Mark was 53. Oh God. He passed, passed oh, away God. very, very suddenly. He, he went into hospital and uh, a couple of days later he was uh, diagnosed with, with cancer. It was a Friday evening and I went in to have a chat to him and he passed away on the Monday. So it was a, it was rapid, a hard mm. process at the time, you know. Mm. And what effect did it have on everybody in the family? Oh, uh, a, a, hu- a huge effect, you know. Uh, Mark was my older brother. He was, uh, he wasn't my brother, he was a buddy as well, you know. So it had a effect, effect, huge effect. And then uh, we were only, only uh, chatting because my sister had breast cancer the year prior and she got over it with flying colours. So when he got his diagnosis, we, we weren't thinking of, of anything so serious, mm. you know. Well, that so leaves everybody rattled and it takes a long time to get over that. And Oh, it's rampant. If there's a silver lining, it's, it's also a huge motivator and I imagine you've, you've a great determination in facing into your challenge. But tell us why you decided to swim the Shannon as opposed to maybe climb a mountain or do something else. Well, I was called into Mark on the the Friday evening after he got his diagnosis for for a chat to him, and he was upbeat. And just to go back, my sister, I said, had breast cancer in 2015. So to show her how much I cared about her and to raise money for Breast Cancer Ireland, I ran a marathon a week around Ireland. So did 52 marathons in 52 weeks in aid of Breast Cancer Ireland in 2016. So, my goodness, my goodness. How long did it take your body to recover? Oh, uh, a little while now. It, it, was, it, was, it was a tough time. I didn't realise how tough it would be at the start. But uh, I would got through it in flying colours and raised a few quid for Breast Cancer Ireland. And it was a good year. I met some amazing people along the way and heard some amazing stories. So it, w- it was an upbeat year because Jennifer recovered and, and I made some amazing friends. But roll on then to the Friday evening, I called into Mark, and he was very upbeat and jolly, even though he was after getting his diagnosis. And he said to me, now, here, because you run all them marathons for Jennifer, you'll have to do something for me now, won't you? Messing. Mm. And I said, I'll call up to you on Monday morning and we'll think about it. 
and unfortunately we never had the conversation. Oh dear. So I was I had done a lot of running over the years with different uh, charities. So I was, was looking out for something a bit bit different that might catch people's attention. So I figured out that only five people have ever swam the length of the Shannon from top to tip. So I set off training before I said anything to anyone and I figured out that I think I'd be able to do it. So then we decided on a and we're here now, only a couple of weeks out. So I believe a Canadian man was the he first did. to do he it. He was the first man. He, he came over, I think it was about five years ago-ish, and he had swam a lot of first rivers around the world. That's what he does, he comes with his daughter. And she cruised from him and he, he just goes from him. I've, I haven't met him. Uh, I tried to contact him on Facebook for a couldn't get him. And it took him roughly a it month to do it. around a month, yeah. He got, he got very bad weather on the lakes because Loch Derg and Loch Ree can be uh, quite tricky if you get bad wind. Oh, yeah, there are big bodies of water indeed. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to go in. It would be too dangerous. So I think he had to step out for a couple of days here and there and uh, get back in there when the, when the weather uh, got better. So who came after him? Then there was a man from Clahan, not too far away from me. His name was Patrick MacDonald. Uh, I've met Patrick a few times now, and he's helped me out with training and everything. He's a gentleman. And he's done it in 14 days. Uh, he got uh, heat wet for two weeks nearly, and, and the, the, the river and the lakes were, were like a pond. And he flew down, couldn't have went better for him. But he has been a, a really good help to me uh, with planning and advice. Mm. And I know uh, there were three women as well three women who did it at various Paris times, but they had bad yeah. weather. Ellen Maxwell and I can't remember the other two girls' names, but they, yeah, they got dodgy weather in, in parts too when it took them, I think it was in around three weeks or mm. two and a half, three weeks, something like that. So, so uh, what we'll feedback, just, we'll what advice did you get from Patrick? Well, he, he just said, take it steady, don't get bogged down in it, don't get too, if, if you get a bad day, just take it off, get your rest get back in because it's not a race I'm not doing it to beat any records I'm doing it in aid of the East Galway Midlands Cancer Sport and the Irish Cancer Society so it's all about them if it takes me an extra week it takes me an extra week I, I'm not going to I'm not going to uh, beat myself up about it the, the, the goal is to raise a few quid and do my best I will put my heart and soul to get down there in two weeks but if we get bad weather there's nothing I can do about that you know Aidan, you're obviously a man in good shape, having previously done the marathons. <laughs> so the the cardiovascular aspect of this is probably not the biggest challenge. How different stamina? Y- yeah, how different is swimming uh, uh, as as a challenge to the marathons? Yeah, it's completely different altogether. Yeah, you you know, in marathon, if you get tired, you can stop and have a walk. But if you're out in the middle of somewhere, you can't. You can, I suppose you could stop and have a breast stroke or something for a minute, but you just have to keep going. So it's more upper body than lower body because it's your shoulders that get it more than your legs, you know. But I said I started training last uh, October before I uh, told anyone I was doing it, and I have continued to train on up until now, and I can keep going until, until I get in the water. And so I'm feeling good, and I'm in good spirits, and I'm positive, so... Please, God, we just get the good weather and everything will go to plan. Are you competitive? Are you tempted to beat the 14 no, days? Oh, not at all. No, no, I've never been, I've never, not really competitive. I'm more in it for, for the crack. Even with running the marathon, as I said, I met so many people. But that's because I wasn't running like a lunatic around the place. I was jogging, chatting to people, meet, meeting people, having chats, uh, you know, hearing people's stories and 
telling them my story and that's how you, you get a lot of comfort in that and it gets you through your hard times and your hard days out running and swimming I'll have kayakers there so if I stop for my lunch I'll be chatting to them and hopefully we'll have a camper van that will follow me and down for two weeks so every evening if we stop in the village I'd love to see a few people come down to the camper van for an old chat and we, we might have a barbecue going and, and uh, get everyone involved and meet a few new people along the way So for those of us wanting to maybe go along for the chats or just generally support and contribute and help out how can we follow your efforts Aidan? Uh, well I have an Instagram and a Facebook page set up and it's Sheridan Swims the Shannon and if people want to donate, there's links in the bios on the, the two uh, social media accounts to uh, to donate. And even if they're, they're, things are hard around the country at the minute, even if they can't donate, even if they go on and like me on page and, and share it and you know who might see it and, and follow, I'll be putting up stories every day on my Instagram and Facebook so they'll see where I am and where I'm coming into that evening and how I'm getting on. And if they want to come down and have a chat, by all means, Come down and I'd be only delighted for a bit of sport and a chat and a giggle in the evenings, you know. All right. We've had a text, by the way, saying, watch out for the eels in Loch Ray. Oh, stop. I, I'm swimming Loch Ray most days. And because I work in Galway and I live in Banasloe, so Loch Ray would be on the way home. And I've been swimming with eels for the last couple of months there. There's millions of them over there. You're well used to it then. Yeah, I'm a bigger if it was a shark or something no I'm not worried <laughs> I don't think there are sharks in Loch Ray now I think you're safe enough on that I am but Loch Ray is crystal clear you can see the bottom at all times oh but really Loch Ray and Loch Derg you can't see so I don't care what's underneath me I won't be able to see them <laughs> <laughs> alright Aidan best wishes with your efforts and we look uh, forward to seeing the results I really appreciate the support and thanks very much, Will. Our pleasure, our pleasure. So, he starts on uh, the 15th of July in Dowra in County Cavan. And again, please support, if you can, Aidan Sheridan, who comes originally from Ballinasloe. Now, next on Midlands 103, a man who hopes to become a very senior member of an Irish political party and be able to influence policy and be able to affect change. And you might think, well, you know, what's unusual about that? Well, this man will be a first if he does it, and you'll find out why after these. Political parties are very often closed shops if you don't have a family member, a legacy. Uh, But increasingly that's beginning to change, and the influence within the party can be not just the elected members, but those who sit on its national executive, those who can help influence policy at a very high level. And I want you to meet a man who, if he is elected to the Fianna Fáil national executive, he will be the first person ever with Down syndrome to do so. And his name is Finton Bray, and he's from County Westmeath. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Finton, tell us a little bit about yourself. So, of course, my name is Finton Bray. I am 28 years old. And even though I'm born with disability or Down syndrome, I'm glad who I am. And I live with uh, my mom and dad and my brothers and sisters. So, that's me. Tell us why you're interested in politics. The reason I want to get involved in politics is because I want my first heard 
and everyone in Westmead to heard that who I am, and of course, to Finfall, the reason of Finfall politics because all my life I have been speaking up who I am, and in my education and in my further education, of course, to get my voice more more unheard, so more TDs, slanters, and counselors can hear the real me. So that's why I want to be on this mm. politics because I've done with my family proud, of course myself proud. And your voice will speak for other people who have Down syndrome and you will know some of the challenges that brings. So would you give us a, a little bit of your own background and some of the struggles that you've overcome? So yeah, um, of course I went to Cavan Institute in Cavan and uh, before that, I went to um, St. Finnis College in Monagar and I went on to St. Torres in Delvin, County West Speed. And I've, I've done a lot of education as well. And I'm now into, now I'm into work as well. Like the Monagar Park Hotel, the Griffin Arms in Monagar. So I went into hospitality training. But never went into politics back then, but now I can. So all my life right now is basically my my life, my voice and my ability to work other things. Do you feel you've had to work harder than others? No, I know my own strength. I know my own weakness. But yes, mostly I do. I need to work harder as other people, but. Life is about working hard, as you can. Don't be afraid to lose your ability. Don't be afraid to lose your voice. I feel that I work more harder as I can. Don't be afraid to look for help. So what would be the issues you would advance if you were elected to the Fianna Fáil National Executive? Can you say that one more time, please? What would be the issues that you would promote? What do you care about in politics? Well, I care about in politics that it's your voice. I work hard. If you don't work hard, you never sit in life. You have to work hard as much as you can. Don't be afraid to lose your voice. And show that you have a voice that you want to heard. I'll be proud to call yourself who you are. Don't be afraid. Don't lose anything that you want in life. Just keep going. Just live your life to the fullest. So, if you are elected to the national uh, executive, you're going to be there with other people uh, around the table who uh, maybe have a lot of experience at a very high level, would you be intimidated? No, because I have been with a lot of Finfall legends, like Miha Martin, or even other names as well. And I've been at with those, and Megan Tuffer, or the word you said, um, no, because they teach me just the way I am. They didn't care that bond with Down syndrome or disability. I'm there to be a part 
of an organized nation and be part of a, a, one of the greatest thing for people that I know. And of course, they know me since, or some of them know me when I was small, mm. or some of them know me from a family. But that's how I got through this. Not just because they know me, because they know the man who I am today. So that is why they know me. Just too proud to be a member of Finnafall. And what other organisations are you involved in? Apart from Finnafall, a part of the OAC is called Richard Advisor Councillor, and it's that in Mead. But in Westmead and in everywhere, a part of the National Centre in Down Syndrome Ireland. And of course, I am part of the a new one with Finnafall Disability Network Group. I'm also part of the uh, other members of different organisations in everywhere in all over Ireland. So you're a busy man? Yeah, I'm a busy man myself. I also swim, I also dance, but mostly this where I want to be. To shout, to roar, to lose my voice. I've learned to walk, to talk, to read and to write. What do you need to do to get appointed to the committee? What I need to do, everything as I can, to show the issues that I want to raise. Mm. But there's going to be competition. A lot of people want this job. Yes. How do you get it? How I can get my voice, my ability. That's it. Does it come down to a vote? Yes, it does. It goes down to a vote. Just matter if you don't get if I don't get, I'm aiming with the big guys. And that is achievement of a life achievement. Just matter if you don't get, it's not about winning or losing. It's about that you do something that you want to get in life. I'm here on one thing, and it's so my ability. I saw that I am just not a person without saying them. I'm a person, just keep going in life. And that's why I'm here in this politics to go out and share your voice. Fenton, I admire anybody who will stand up and be counted. And that's what you're doing. I wish you the best. And I thank you for coming in to see us this morning. Thank you so much. Could I add a few more things? Yes, of course. I just want to thank you to my family for every support. Even my dad, Eamon Bray, for being the campaign manager for day one. And thank you to him, of course. Thanks to everyone, to my family, to the head of the ability program, Ify Gaffney, and everyone being supportive. So thank you so much for, for my, especially my girlfriend, Monica, for being just a bigger part of my life. And thank you to everyone. So thank you so much, everyone. Well done, well done. Finton Bray from County Westmeath, who wants to be the first person with Down syndrome elected to Fianna Fáil's National Executive and to be a voice. Good morning now, still on the agenda today. How difficult is it to find childcare in the Midlands? Because in parts of Dublin, there's now a two-year waiting list in many creches. Does your local creche have a waiting list? If so, how long is it? 
And a leash filmmaker could be on the cusp of greatness because her work has been shortlisted for one of the world's most prestigious festivals. You'll meet her in an hour's time. Now, front page news on many of today's newspapers. The death of a prisoner in the Midlands prison, a man who was due to go on trial next week for the murders of his family. Ellen Butler is in studio. She has the details. Good morning, Ellen. Morning, Will. So what do we know so far? Yeah, so it emerged last night that uh, the remains of Samir Saeed, who was 37 years old, were found in his cell in the Midlands prison in Port Leash. Uh, so uh, he, as you mentioned, is suspected of murdering his wife, Seema Banu, who's, who was also 37, daughter Asfira, 11, and son Faizan, 6, at their home in Llewellyn Court in Ballantyre in South Dublin in October 2020. Um, so, look, investigations are now underway. The the death of a prisoner in the Midlands prison has been confirmed by the Irish Prison Service. They say that all deaths in custody are investigated by the service, the inspector of prisons and on Garda Síochána where circumstances warrant. So it hasn't been confirmed um, what exactly has happened. It is being reported that it's a suspected suicide. Uh, we were now also speaking to uh, Mr. Saeed's solicitor, Phelan O'Neill, who comes from Athlone himself, uh, who told us this morning that he does have very significant concerns about how a high-profile prisoner could die in custody. All right, an evolving story. We'll keep you up to date. Ellen, thank you very much. Thank you. And as she said, that is reported in the Star newspaper as a suicide, but we do not have confirmation of that from the authorities as of yet. Now, let's move on to the housing crisis once again. Um, because the demand for housing continues to grow and grow and grow, but it shouldn't be out of proportion with the area. So say residents of Newbrook in Mullingar, who have, in their own view, fought to the end to prevent uh, development taking place in their area. Now, let's get the full background to this. Breda Keeley joins us from the Newbrook Residents Association. Breda, you're welcome to the programme. I will, thank you. Your concerns... Sorry, my uh, dog is just going mad here. <laughs> Murphy's Sorry. Law, Murphy's Law. Your concern and that of your neighbours seems to be with the scale of what is proposed. Can you flesh that out for us? I can, but I just want to clarify just one thing. We weren't objecting and are not objecting to a development on that site. We recognise the need for housing. We recognise the need for that eyesore to be gone. We, indeed, we were pushing for it for years. It was the sheer density of it that we were objecting to. So the, to flesh it out more was, first of all, um, I, the front part of this proposal will be three stories three stories in height. Now, either side of that three stories are bungalows. So it's not in keeping with the area. Now, the development then goes down to two stories at the back, and at the back of the development, all our houses are two stories, so that's fine. Okay, so that will be in keeping. Yes. Yes. And just for anybody unfamiliar with the area, Breda, what is there at the moment, this eyesore you referred to? This eyesore is a derelict building. It was 
um, uh, six apartments and underneath it were four retail units. And it has been derelict for years and was a hotbed for antisocial behaviour. There was even a fire in it. I mean, we had rats, we, everything was going on. We fought with the local authority for years to get something done, to get the owner to clean up this site or do something about it because it was an absolute eyesore. You didn't get the dog and involved, did you? No, I, I don't know what the dog is barking at. There is, I thought there was a dog out there, but there isn't. Sorry. No, but... <laughs> I, I, but uh, I, I, everybody I, I, barred the dog I, I, got involved. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and to no avail, the, the shopping centre uh, lay idle. It was a magnet for antisocial behaviour, as you've said. So on yes, on the surface, absolutely. then, I, I would imagine you would be pleased to see something productive come of the site... We are so delighted and we're so delighted that it is apartments because, like everyone knows, there is a housing crisis. It's just 17 apartments in such a small site is, they were like shoeboxes actually, but now under the, the on board plan direction, they have been increased, nine of them have been increased in size, which is something I suppose. But also, there's only 20 car parking spaces for 17 apartments. Now, I, I just, like, in the inspector's report, now, it, it didn't actually come in as an order from the board, but one of the points in the inspector's report was prior to the occupation of the development, a mobility management plan or residential travel plan shall be submitted to and agreed in writing with the planning authority. This shall provide for incentives to encourage the use of public transport, cycling, walking, and carpooling <laughs> by residents, occupants, staff employed in the development, and to reduce and regulate the extent of parking. The plan should be prepared and implemented by the management company for all units within the development. Now, that's laughable. I mean, it, 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 they didn't put it in the order because somebody must have saw it then. We do not have a local public bus service in Mullingar at all. And this uh, can sometimes happen when Onboard Planola is, is based in Dublin and elsewhere in the country. They may not realise the situation on the ground. Uh, on the ground, exactly. Now, we are a 10-minute walk from the train station. That much is accurate. Um, it, but they have that in another part of it. But... If you have children going to school, everybody drives their children to school. I mean, there's been an issue, even when my children were small, about the weight of school bags. It's still going on. They can't possibly carry their bags to school. And they're all brought to school in by car, you know. So, like, it's unrealistic to say that these people won't use cars. Of course they mm. use cars. Ne- but nevertheless, you made your point about density then ties into that more cars in the area clogging up the area. But you made all these arguments uh, to Westmeath County Council, uh, subsequently to on board Planola. The board yeah. has, for its own reasons, decided not to agree with everything you've said. What have you learned from the experience as a residents association trying to fight your corner? 
<clears throat> well, I don't know if we learned anything. I mean, it's going ahead and uh, there aren't enough open space for the children to play in. Uh, our, our concerns about um, um, safety hazards were ignored. I mean, the, the opening or the, the entrance is going to be on Newbrook Grove, which is about 70 yards from the main road. We are in the middle of the industrial estate in Mullingar. And, you know, there, it is only wide enough for two vehicles. So if a, if a vehicle is waiting to turn right into this um, apartment block um, and another vehicle come round the corner from the main road, they'll uh, bump into each other. Like, it's there's just not enough room there. It's too near the entrance of the main road. Um, a, a listener asked a great question. I don't know the answer to this. Maybe you do. Uh, does on board Planola send its inspector to the area to see on the ground what happens, or is it just a desktop review? Uh, I don't know the answer. I'm assuming they went there, but I don't know. Mm. I don't know the answer to that. We were in contact. I mean, we 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 employed. Um, a town planning consultant to do the appeal to onboard Planola because, uh, you know, we wouldn't be... Well, it wouldn't be in in your skill set, no, but you you obviously took it seriously as a committee to to go to the cost of that. Uh, The planning board, for its reasons, has has decided otherwise. Um, This is going ahead... Yeah, it's going ahead and they didn't take any of our concerns really into account at all. Um, I, I don't know, is it just bad timing? With I mean, there is a housing crisis and we all understand that. But there's no green area there. The green area is a rooftop garden. <laughs> like, it's, it's actually almost laughable what's going to go there. But it's going to be a complete eyesore and it's going to make it very hard to get out of that junction in the mornings or at peak times for, you know, people bringing children to school or going to work mm. says or whatever. But I wonder how parents uh, would feel yeah, about their children playing in a rooftop garden. I learned, pardon me? I wonder what parents would think of their children playing in a rooftop garden. I'm not sure I'd be at ease with that, but each to their own. You were going to say that... No, the, the, they did use um, our green area in their, um, in their um, recommendations that they were going to use our green areas. But our our estate was never taken in charge by the county council. We we pay for the maintenance of our green areas ourselves, so they won't be using them. I can assure you of that much. But um, across the road uh, at that junction, which is it's too near the main road, if they were going to use it, you know what I mean. The other back further from mm. the green area. And Breda, before but, I let you go, on what was learned. Yeah, well, what we learned, first, we are a great community here. This was all done during COVID, where we couldn't have meetings or anything. We had pole days uh, down in uh, uh, one of our green areas, uh, where people literally put in yes or no, into whether they want just to go ahead with the appeal, and a suggestion box for the grounds for the appeal. And then they were asked to just... Uh, when this was yes we just sent a note around saying you know how much it was going to cost and we'd like 
a contribution from as many that could afford it and just please put it in um well my letterbox and because um my my husband and I are vulnerable so we didn't really want to mm-hmm. speak to people on a one to one basis. So it, it all came together and the whole community came together. It was incredible. Like that was our biggest learning that we have a brilliant community here. It also gave us an insight into the way we'll say Wesley County Council, I suppose any local authority be the same and on board Planola uh, they do go through your grounds of appeal and while they don't really disagree with them they still ignore them <laughs> if they want to you know what I mean so I kind of and it leaves you wondering we, then what is the point of the exercise yes but I suppose the way we felt about it that this was our final um chance of getting somebody to see sense about the scale of this and uh, we felt if we didn't go the whole hog we'd regret it because we'd say well maybe if we had appealed to one board plan all that it, it might have reduced it to maybe 12 mm. apartments which would be much more and two stories you know but anyway it didn't but we we gave it our best shot and even when the report came out so everybody said to us, look, we gave it our best shot. Well, and nobody came back and said, what a waste of money. You, Breda, I mean? you, you rallied the troops, you fought the fight. Yeah. And yeah, I appreciate you do. sharing your story this morning. Thank you. OK, thanks, Will. That's Breda Keeley from the Newbrook Residents Association in Mungar. And if you've had a similar experience, if you have come up against the authorities, the planning uh, department locally, on board Planola nationally, what was the learning from it, Um, did you have any more success or would you regard it as futile that your concerns were just ignored Um, 083 30 10 103 on text and on WhatsApp My next question for you is how difficult is it to find childcare in your area? Because in parts of Dublin there's now a two year waiting list you have to see into the future and imagine nearly when you're going to have kids at this rate. So, what is the answer? What is the solution? The Labour Party has an idea. We'll hear more in a moment. In a few minutes, a gardening festival that might tempt you outdoors this weekend and what you can look forward to at it. Also, hospice. At some point in life, all of us know somebody who has benefited from hospice care. And it is Sunflower Day, a big, big, important fundraiser for them. So uh, what you need to know about that in just under 20 minutes time. How hard is it to find childcare in your own area? And I won't even ask about price because in some parts of Dublin, there's a two year waiting list for creches. And this sparked a conversation during the week involving the Labour Party leader, Ivana Bacic. And she is of the opinion that as a country, as a state, we need to invest vastly more than we are doing at the moment. Which is easy to say. Uh, Where will the money come from is one of the obvious questions. And if you look to the Scandinavian model, invariably it's through greater taxation. And the other question then is how to spend it, how to put the money to best effect. 
And what she talks about is instead of a system that is very much reliant on voluntary bodies and private providers, that we should create a state system of childcare, guaranteeing a place in early years education and care, one that won't have a waiting list and certainly one that won't be as expensive as the model at the moment. So that's the Labour Party position. Obviously, the detail has to be worked out. Let's get your opinion on this. What is the best model that we should follow for the future? You can text or WhatsApp 083 30 10 103 and please share your own experience so we can uh, paint a picture of what reality on the ground has been for you. Dimpna Keegan manages Bright Beginnings, which is a community childcare centre in Ferban in County Offaly. Good morning, Dimpna. Good morning, Will. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Now, you work in the business and you've given this more thought than most people. So what's your opinion on the best model for the future? Well, I think the best model for the future is to go back to where the government, with us as a community facility, we were part of the childcare investment programme in 2006, whereby there was a grant uh, given towards staff wages. Now, that worked very well for us. We opened in 2006. Uh, we increased fees slightly in 2009. And our last increase was 2019, and that was 6%. So I think putting the finance or the model where you're saying use the money to its best effect, the best effect is to invest in the people working in the sector so we can recruit, so we can retrain, so that we can retain very good staff. Um, staff shortage is our biggest enemy at the moment in childcare. Mm. Well, in, in many sectors. How yes. pronounced is it for you? To be honest with you, with our waiting lists, there's a number of babies that I have not been able to accommodate in the last year and a half. Some parents have then had to go and take career breaks or change career to work from home so they can care for their children. Now, we're one of the few facilities in the Midlands who still offer care to children under one. And the ratio there, it's our highest ratio, it's one to three. Mm. So that, 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 that's, that, that's was it three uh, children for one member of staff, is that it? That's correct, okay. yes. And then the ratio changes as older uh, children come in? That's correct. When we go one to two, it's one adult to five children. Two to three is one adult to six. Uh, over three, it's one adult to eight during the day. And then for sessional, it's one adult to 11 children. Right. So the younger the child you're prepared to take, the more yes. staff you need. Absolutely. And therefore, the more expensive the service becomes to maintain. Absolutely. And how has demand changed over the years you've been there? A lot of parents are actually returning to work earlier with their maternity leave. We used to get children coming in, or babies coming in at maybe 10, 11 months, but the trend has changed to parents who are looking for care from six months onwards. Now, we have a lot of parents who are looking for care for their two- to three-year-olds. Now, that had diminished for a period of time with the introduction of the second preschool year, but I've seen an increased demand for that age group in preparation for their first year in preschool. So 
if you were in a state-run system, what changes in effect would it mean? Um, because presumably to do this, uh, they would have to create a system where the state built and operated uh, creches, which would be in competition then with the voluntary organisations and in competition with the private providers. How realistic is that route, in your opinion? If it was state-run, there would be benefits there in that we are very disadvantaged in this sector, that we don't have any organisation of relief staff, um, and staff have to have a minimum of level five to work directly with children. So, for example, during the pandemic, when we had children or staff out with COVID or families with COVID, there was nowhere for us to source staff. So if, like a school, there was a pool of sub-carers, that would be of a huge benefit for the continuity Mm. of care with, with children in a facility such as ours. But if the state was competing against the private sector, then the private sector would obviously have issues with that. I mean, if we look at the nursing home model, for instance, the state has publicly owned nursing homes and there are privately run nursing homes and the Fair Deal scheme provides a subvention to people going into the private homes and the two complement each other quite well. With, With childcare... I suppose one of the concerns from from listeners is that it's perceived in the private industry as being quite lucrative um, for those who own it, not necessarily for those who work in it, I should stress. And there's a concern that value for money might not be achieved if the taxpayer just writes bigger checks. How would you balance that? Well, at the moment, any of the childcare schemes which private and community services can avail of are directed primarily to reduce the parents' fees. With state, I I think they should be looking at redirecting some of the current funding and with the private providers as well because we're all availing of the same pool of money at the moment. So why can it not be directed to help staff? And if we have the pay freeze for parents, that should protect them. But in terms of us competing with private providers, certainly that's not what we're doing at the moment, even though we're community. So my take would be, can they not redirect the funding to help facilities, private or otherwise, to support their staff? Dempanel, it's a conversation that I have a feeling will become... Uh, even louder as the budget approaches and certainly as the next election approaches. Uh, Childcare seems to be one of the major costs to parents and is a barrier for some going back to work, quite frankly. And I I think you've alluded to that. It becomes uneconomical, uh, invariably for many mums, to go back to work. Um, And and politically, this is going to gain traction. But the other side of it is, for any childcare facility, it's the children working directly with the children, dedicated staff that are not being recognised as professionals. We can't attract staff. We're offering minimum wage. The living wage that has been discussed for years now is 12.30 and we're falling well short of that. I have staff travelling to work, increased fuel prices. I have staff who are unable 
to get a mortgage, unable to get a car loan. And these dedicated people are the people we are losing. They are now having to retrain. They're going into different industries. And I really think it's the staff. You know, we've children here for 50 hours a week. The staff are so vital to their development and to their need for security that to lose those people, I think, is the biggest risk that the state are taking by not funding us. Well, if you want good people, you have to pay them. Dimpna, grateful for your time and for your insights. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Will. Thank you for your time. Dimpna Keegan manages Bright Beginnings, a community childcare centre in Forban in County Offaly. 083 30 10 103 on text and WhatsApp, especially if you're a parent. I'd love your point of view as a parent. Now, next on Midlands 103, let's get outdoors because uh, weather-wise, OK, it's a bit grey. It is a little bit grey today, but I think the weekend offers a good mixture with plenty of sunny spells peppered in for good measure. And it's an ideal opportunity to get a little closer to nature at a festival that is happening locally this weekend. All you need to know in a moment. Still on the agenda, a leash filmmaker could be on the cusp of greatness because her work has been shortlisted for one of the world's most prestigious festivals. You'll meet her after 11. Now, it's day three of Leaving Cert 2022. Today is the turn of Maths Paper 1. And this afternoon... It's the geography candidates sitting their exams. And we've been keeping in touch with students from Clonaslee College about their experience of the exams. And this morning on the news, you may have heard Aya Bowes speaking about a really positive engineering exam. Neve Donagher is equally positive about English Paper 2, which lasted a gruelling three hours and 20 minutes yesterday afternoon. So in Paper 2, there's three questions. There's the um, single text question, the comparative question and the poetry question. So this year with the new adjustments, um, you can choose to do two of the three instead of all three. Um, I personally chose to do a fellow for my single text. And I also did the comparative questions. I skipped poetry. Um, well, I like poetry, but I just found that I didn't want to gamble with what poets I was doing. And it was taking a lot more time to learn multiple poets and multiple poems for each of those poets than it was to do my comparative or to do Othello. Um, for my comparative text, I did Never Let Me Go, Philadelphia, Here I Come, and Some Like It Hot. I was a bit thrown off by um, the Othello question at first. Um, but once I actually read it and started planning and everything, it was grand. And the same for the um, comparative. I chose to do general vision of viewpoint. And it took me a bit of planning to think of, of what I could say to answer the question. But once I did my plan and everything, I was, I was good to go. So, so grateful for the changes. I really wouldn't have been able to do all three of the, the questions. And I feel like it, it was a bit more relaxing going in knowing I didn't have to do all three. So... I'm glad to have it over. I do enjoy English, but it's nice to have one out of the way, at least. Good feedback. Refreshing to have positive things to say about some of the state exams. And uh, nice to hear from Neve Donagher once again from Clonus Lee. Buds and Blossoms is a gardening festival happening in Spink this weekend with an array of speakers, including Mary Keenan from Gash Gardens in Castletown. She's the editor of Irish Garden magazine, which has seen a huge increase in its sales since lockdowns encourage more of us to spend time in the garden. The, there are also trends in planting. Uh, one is a move from summer bedding 
the usual pansies and marigolds are making way for perennials, which have benefits that maybe you haven't heard of, but Midlands 103's Claire O'Brien has been finding out about. Well, I think with, you know, the last few years of COVID, um, gardeners have become more, um, I say, wide-ranging in their interest in plants and looking at alternatives to prolonging the colour and interest in their garden and getting more value out of their space. Um, you know, over the years, um, the traditional plants that gardeners rely on to give that boost of colour come June and July in the garden would be the summer bedding. And yes, they still have their place, certainly. I think more so nowadays, perhaps people are using them mainly in hanging baskets and window boxes and container displays. But in wider garden, um, I think perennial planting has somewhat superseded use of annuals in the flower borders and that. Um, mainly because um, you know there's there's much less maintenance involved with them. Um, you know, unlike summer annuals, they they don't require heavy feeding or regular watering or anything like that. So once they're planted, they can be left to their own devices. The roots will go deeper into the ground and fend for themselves. And you know, some people perceive them perhaps as maybe not offering the same length of flowering that summer annuals might do. But if you choose the, the varieties carefully, you'll end up with every bit as much colour as you might do from the summer flowering stuff. And in fact, they actually blend visually um, more readily with shrubs and you know roses and that in a mixed border situation than some of the annuals, which can look maybe a little bit more... Um, Temporary. Uh, temporary, yes, and formal in the situation. Yeah. So, you know, there has been a, certainly a move towards more perennial planting. And, you know, you, you can buy one plant to occupy a space and come the following spring, many of them lend themselves to digging up the plant and dividing it. So while the initial investment might be more than buying a tray of bedding plants, um, over the years you can multiply the, the number of plants you have and indeed perennials generally look better when they're planted in groups and drifts through borders and along the front of borders and that so you know generally I would suggest to people you plant them in groups of threes, fives or whatever odd numbers yeah. they look best but you can start out with one plant and within a year you can turn that into three plants. Tell um, me, give me some examples Mary of the kinds of perennials that are good value in all the ways you know that are not woefully expensive to buy but provide great impact and, as, as you say, can be divided for the following year? Well, if I was to even pick a top three for people that are new to gardening and, and, and experienced gardeners as well, um, hardy geraniums, which are different now to what people understand as the, the geraniums that grow indoors, um, are one of the best to start with. Um, they're a very versatile group of plants. There's a huge range to choose from. And they will tolerate all sorts of garden situations. So whether you've got wet or dry kind of soil, you know, a sunny spot or a shady spot, and I often say they thrive on pure negligence. And one of the longest flowering um, cultivars to look for is geranium roseanne. It was voted plant of the century at Chelsea Flower Show several years ago. And it was voted so mainly because it starts to flower in June and carries on right through until October, flowering almost non-stop. It only reaches maybe about 15 inches in height, so it's perfect for the front of a border. And uh, the flowers are a lovely bright blue, big, bright, wide open flowers on it. So it's it's a good um one to start with and certainly very good plant for long longevity over the summer. Well I get um, that in my local garden centre, Mary. Very readily. It's very popular and very freely available. Mm-hmm. And another good one to try would be um catmint. Uh, in particular there's a cultivar, the Peter Walker's Low. 
And uh, it's a nice contrast even to put it side by side with the geranium because the, the geranium makes kind of a mounded habit and the uh, napita has kind of spiky upright flowers. So visually there's a nice contrast between them. Uh, it has kind of silvery grey foliage and the spikes then are kind of a purpley blue flower spikes on it. And their main peak of flowering will be June into early July. And then when that first flush of flowers has gone over, it's a simple job of just taking the shears to it, cutting off the old dead flower stems and you'll get a second flush of flowers after that again. So, you know, it's again a good door, good reliable plant and it'll thrive particularly well in a sunny, well-drained kind of spot in the, in the, in the garden. And architecturally um, interesting then beside the geraniums. It is, yeah. Certainly makes a good contrast with it. And maybe another one that people might consider again for good visual contrast is um, um, one of the ornamental sages and in particular a cultivar called Salvia caradonna. It's quite upright in its habit, so unlike the other two, which are more mound-forming, um, it makes a plant maybe about two and a half, three feet in height with very distinctive black stems and a very rich purple then flower spike at the tips of the stems. So again, starts flowering early summer, carries through until midsummer, and even when the flowers go over, the seed heads that are left behind with that are quite attractive. So, you know, those three, even in their own right, to introduce those into a garden will give a bit of permanence um, and, and longevity of flower through the summer period without an awful lot of effort. Now, the leashgardenfestival.com is where you can find out more about uh, buds and blossoms, which takes place in Spink Community Grounds on Sunday. And Mary Keenan will be talking about summer garden splendour. So one more time, leashgardenfestival.com for all you need to know. One of the cruel aspects of life is that you never fully appreciate a service until... You need it yourself or somebody you love needs to avail of it. And that's when its importance and its value uh, becomes apparent. And I want you to meet Agnes Weaver, who is a volunteer with the hospice and has personal experience of how the hospice has helped her family and indeed may one day help your family. Agnes, good morning. Good morning, Will. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Would you mind sharing your story with us? Well, my husband Joe was diagnosed with cancer. He was a young man at the time <clears throat> and um, our children were young. So he battled it for a number of years, but finally uh, was told that he was terminally ill. And uh, the palliative care team came on board. They came to our home. And I can't emphasize enough the care and what they brought to our home for me, for Joe, for the children and the extended family. Um, it was just, they took away the fear and anxiety that surrounds, you know, hmm. the, what's going on. And um, I think Joe's biggest fear was how he would die, that, you know, pain. And um, they reassured him that he would not, have, that he would be pain free. And he was able to stay at home with us uh which is lovely because, you know, you can sit down and chat to him. The kids could spend time with him. And and you're not in a strange setting. And not in a strange Everybody's setting. a bit and more comfortable. Time. And yes. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it just allowed him to die at home, surrounded by his loved ones. Family could come and visit. And um, if there's a nice way to die... <laughs> He did, he did have a very peaceful um, ending and um, it just took, 
took away the fear and anxiety and I can't praise them enough for their excellent care. They were just so lovely to us and provided anything we needed. Nothing was too much. They come any time of the day or night. A night nurse is provided if it's, you know, if it's necessary so that we can get sleep and rest, which is great because during the day you're busy. Um, it was just a good experience in a very in a very difficult way. Yeah, I, I, situation, I, you know. I, I understand. I understand. Can I introduce as well Margaret Claffey? And Margaret, you're the chair of the North Westmeath Hospice. Good morning to you as well. Good morning, uh, Will. Thank you for having me on today. Your own story is very interesting because uh, at one point you went back to college uh, to do uh, a study uh, in nursing initially and then you went on to do a higher dip in oncology. Why? Yes, that's right. Uh, Well, when I was working in the general hospital in Mullingar on the medical wards, uh, I just had a passion for cancer victims and I felt very inadequate in that I didn't know enough information to give to the patients when they were diagnosed with uh, a cancer diagnosis, which we all know is a very frightening experience to have. And at the time, I they were all transferred to Dublin for their care, well, the majority of, and they'd be asking questions and I felt I didn't know enough. So that spurred me on to increase my knowledge on cancer treatments and that's when I got involved in the oncology and it meant going back to college, yes. And I believe you worked with Dr Cushion and we had him on the programme earlier this week discussing palliative care. Yes, I I, I worked with Dr Cushion, I'd say, for 15 years in the Midland Regional Hospital in Tullamore in the oncology setting, yes. So, obviously then you became passionate about hospice care and I'd like your perspective on having a central Midlands hospice, which we don't have, and we're the only region in the yeah, country not yes, to Yes, at the, at the moment, we're the only the only um, area in the country that doesn't have a standalone building. But as you know, we've got good news in the last couple of months that there is going to be a standalone, a 16-bedded standalone unit in the grounds of the Midland Regional Hospital at Tullamore, close to the Oncology and Cancer Services um, and, and there's some concern in other counties that it's going to undermine the home care that has been so valuable for so long. Yeah, well, I, well, I, I, I don't think that's going to be the the, the case. I, think, I still think that the home care will still continue to car- be carried out. Uh, my idea of the hospice, um, the 16-bedded unit at Tullamore Hospital, will be there as a... a, a place where patients can, if they are unsettled and they are in difficulty at home, maybe with pain or with nausea, vomiting, can be taken into the hospice unit and be stabilised over a couple of days and then go back home mm. to their own their own surroundings and their own bed in their own home. And the home care team will still be able to look after them in the comfort mm. of their own home. So it expands the options. And as Agnes has well described, there are benefits to having the person at home. But sometimes yes. medical need may dictate otherwise. Exactly. And it's not its not for everybody. It's, it's not every family would like to have their patient at home. It isn't feasible for everybody maybe to look after somebody who is terminally ill and have a death at home in, the, in, in their own house. And the hospice will be the other alternative. Mm. So, 
Talk to us about brass tacks, because money makes everything uh, happen or not happen, as the case may be. And for two years due to COVID-19, yeah. Sunflower Day has had to take a back seat. So yeah. you're back with so a vengeance. Sun, so, so Sunflower Day is, is taking place today and tomorrow all over the country. Um, our, the Sunflower Day are celebrating 32 years in existence. It's a long, one of Ireland's longest established charity fundraisers and it was set up back in 1990 to raise funds to to help the palliative care team provide the service they, their, to their terminally ill patients. So today, because the last two years there has been no fundraising and has been tampered with the COVID-19, all our volunteers are out on the streets in every village and town across the country selling merchandise or sunflower merchandise to raise funds for their local hospice. Uh, it is important to mention that all monies raised stays locally. Each, each euro that's raised stays in their local hospice area. And so I am asking all the people around the, the country to come out today and support the National Sunflower Day. If they can't be on the streets, there is a virtual garden where they can go online, uh, log into the website at www.togetherforhospice.ie forward slash sunflowerdays and donate Whatever you can, whatever you whatever can spare, you can. indeed. And in, in, and in doing that, they can buy a virtual sunflower in memory of a loved one. Togetherforhospice.ie forward slash sunflower days. Ladies, That's I'm it. grateful to you both for your time and thank you very much for sharing your stories. Thank, thank you very you much. Very much. Ma- Margaret Claffey is chair of Northwest Meath Hospice. Agnes Weaver is a volunteer who, as you've heard, has had personal experience of how the local hospice helped when she lost her husband. Good morning. Now, our Friday panel is on the way from 20 past 11. Uh, looking back on an interesting week. Shorter week, too, with the bank holiday. Thank heavens, it is Friday. And uh, weather-wise, a mixed bag over the weekend. So, if you've any nice plans, if you've any recommendations, do share uh, when you can. Uh, by the way, good feedback as well on... Uh, Breda's interview a little earlier. Breda Keeley from the Newbrook Residents Association in Mullingar and they fought to the end uh, with Westmeath County Council and with Board Panola uh, trying to reduce the scale of a development in their area. Uh, 17 apartments and a number of retail units as well. Uh, three stories. They're not happy because they're in a housing estate Uh, two-storey buildings. They feel it to be too large. And the learning, well, they found out they had a very good community, but ultimately they felt their concerns were not listened to. And if we go by some of the texts, they're not on their own in having that impression. Uh, Will, the learning is as follows. Government bodies have a policy to hold the line Avoid engagement where possible. Avoid eye contact if you do meet Joe Public and speak using vast volumes of jargon. Hold the line, protect the wall, never give in and eventually voluntary groups and activists will be worn down and give up. That's the learning. And a different listener who's in County Leash is surprised to hear the story, especially when it came to where the entrance to the development was located. I'm looking for planning at the moment and my entrance has to be 90 metres away from another entrance 
for safety. So do all councils apply the same rules? No, apparently they don't. Depending on where you live, the planners may take a different view. And by the way, praise still coming in in huge volumes for Finton Bray from County Westmeath, who aims to be the first person with Down syndrome to be elected to Fianna Falls National Executive and Mary in Mullingar wanting to commend Finton on his achievements and his positive attitude and how well he spoke on Midlands 103 earlier. He would be a great advocate for people with Down syndrome, she says, and I will definitely give Stephen my vote. I feel it's high time people with disabilities had more input into policy making. Finton has first-hand knowledge of the challenges of people with disabilities and what they experience on a daily basis. Well done to Finton and keep up the good work, she says. Now, dreams sometimes come true. And when you think big, you know that old adage about aiming for the stars? Well, a filmmaker from County Leash is on the cusp of greatness, possibly, after her short animated film was selected for one of the world's most prestigious film festivals in New York City. Ashling Conroy is on the phone. Good morning, Ashling. Hi, Will. How are you keeping? I'm in great form. And you sound like you're full of beans today. Yeah, no, it's great. <laughs> I'd say you're on cloud nine. Now, talk to us about Bardo. What's it about? Yeah, so Bardo is um, a four-minute animated short uh, film, all in 2D hand-drawn animation. Um, and it's really a short film, I suppose, drawing on themes of anxiety in the modern world, um, which is very relatable to a lot of people. Um, it's a story about realisation and ultimately transformation. Um, it's about this young woman who finds herself entangled in the complexities of a busy, modern, urban lifestyle, um, you know, parting in her 20s. Um, and then this is kind of slowly wearing her down and she starts to compare this to the memory of her grandmother, which is a more idealised version um, of, an, you know, days of old, mm-hmm. um, country living and a simpler way of life. So I think... With times of COVID, um, there's a real draw to nature, which is maybe what it, people relate to it. Um, so, yeah, that's Bardo. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a thought in my head as I listen to your description, how relatable it is, many of the themes you've addressed there. And let's give credit to the entire team. So how many people worked on this with you? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean... I know, I, I suppose the director and the producer always get the, the kudos, but really um, the crew, there was 13 of us uh, working on, on the film. Um, and everybody has added their own. They're just all so talented. Everyone's just added their own flair and style to the film. So you can really see that um, in Bardo. Um, so, yeah, we all worked through, during COVID um, and it was all remote. So everyone working at their bedrooms and kitchen tables and been on calls late at night and yeah it's just incredible amount of work um a real you know labor of love for everybody so we're just so excited that it got into Trebekah um sometimes when you're in the production you can't see the wood from the trees and they're like why are we doing this you know so when something like Trebekah comes along yeah like it you realize why and and everybody like I said everyone's very excited about it for those of us outside the industry, I've heard of Trebekah, for instance. I know it has something to do with Robert De Niro once upon a time. But how 
much does it mean within the business to be shortlisted for Trebekah? Yeah, I mean, I suppose you, with Trebekah, um, I mean, you've got a lot of the, the most famous, well-known, best filmmakers in the world um, in Trebekah Film Festival. So, you know, it's just an honour to have Bardo join that list. Um, and, you know, everyone in the production, like I said, it just works so hard. So, like, we were one of three Irish productions. Uh, selected for it so again just really excited even just for Irish animation I think um, yeah just very happy <laughs> Trebekah is a who's who sort of event and 150,000 people every year make their way to it it's yeah. a milestone for your career uh, to get on that shortlist I, I presume by the way you'll be going love to go unfortunately though with work committing, committing <gasps> to make it um, but we're no. far it's probably the closest we'll get to Robert De Niro <laughs> but uh, yeah celebrating from a far away I hear can the boss not give you a day off or are you the boss <laughs> I'm the boss at the moment yeah <laughs> and are you allowed to tell us what this new project is or is it a state secret Um, it's a state secret Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> Suffice to say, big things on the horizon. Uh, lots, lots of nice projects. Yeah, working on at the moment. Um, and then the way they, the way they work, you can't really talk about them until they're released. But yeah, like very nice things working at the moment. Very excited. Um, and this is just, yeah, the, the Bardo at Rebecca is just another little cherry on the top. So yeah. A few people have asked Ashling, how can you watch Bardo, or when eventually might you see it? Yeah, I think we might um, publish it uh, like the end of this year. At the moment, it's still in the festival circuit, so we we can't release it um, for general release. But I think at the end of this year, end of twenty twenty two, we'll we'll publish it, and it'll be probably due to watch in Vimeo or, or YouTube. And we'll have a big launch in County Leash, will we? Maybe. Who knows? <laughs> that would be lovely. Ashling, congratulations again and best wishes and uh, we look forward to hearing more from you. And just as well, well I just want to say thanks again to Screen Ireland um, and RTE for funding the Frameworks project um, and also to our producer Claire Lennon and uh, the production company and Maps and Plants. Brilliant. Well, Ashling, thanks for your time. wouldn't make the film, so yeah, thank you. Ashling Conroy from County Leash. Uh, debuts at the Tribeca Film Festival, founded by Robert De Niro 20 years ago. It was in the wake of the 9-11 attacks and really he and, and the other founders wanted to revitalise the area after the terrible tragedy. And now it's just become that massive annual staple on the film calendar. 150,000 people going there every year. It's a stunning achievement by Ashling and the rest of the team. So huge congratulations. A few people asking again, where can you watch Bardo? You can't watch Bardo. It'll be out once uh, the team, Ashling and her colleagues, once the film festivals are over. Or else jump on a plane, go to Tribeca. Uh, that might be one o- way of shortcutting it. Uh, Claire O'Brien is here, by the way, as uh, presenter of Encore, the art yeah. show. Uh, you would know quite a bit about Tribeca. Big deal. Yeah, and it's, it's phenomenally exciting. And it's funny, a few years ago, I remember being in New York and being in one of the double-decker buses, you know, when you're doing the tour around. And we stopped at the at Tribeca, at the at the venue where it is. It's massive. Um, and you can see um, 
they, you know, oh, it's just it's it's right by by the river. It's just a beautiful venue. But you can imagine the thousands and thousands of people and the big big names who would be going along to see that and seeing the Midlands on on the map. Yeah, and then imagine getting shortlisted and discovering you'd work commitments and you couldn't go. Devastating. <laughs> Absolutely. Also on the Friday panel, Michelle DeForge, who is from the Dunamay's Arts Centre in Portlaoise. Uh, and you will give us some context as well as to how big a deal Trebekah is. Morning, Michelle. Good morning, good morning. Yeah, huge congrats to Ashley and the team. Bardo is a really beautiful film. We showed it as part of our Culture Night um, uh, lineup last year. And it got a huge response. Of course, you had loads of local supporters there with her, which was wonderful, wonderful to see it on the big screen. And yeah, Tribeca, I mean, to, the, the selection process, even for an Irish film festival, but Tribeca is at a whole... Yes, well, I think... ...other you... levels. So to be selected among your peers to be shown on a shortlist like that is really, really a huge achievement. You're going to have to show it again, I think, after she's shortlisted. Might, the yeah, band will increase. Too. Now, also with us, Albert Fitzgerald from the Tullamoreland District Rotary Club, uh, who hasn't been to Tribeca, I don't think, but you have met Britney Spears. I met Britney Spears back in 2003 by purely by accident. Um, it was actually at the time when uh, the radio station was being bought by the Tyndall family in the UK. And we were over in London and we ended up in this magnificent hotel. And there were a couple of... Um, covered in black SUVs outside and paparazzi. You know, we took no notice. It was, it was the um, Manchurian Hotel or something like that. But but uh, later that night, after, you know, some lots of drink and stuff like that, we were walking back towards Hyde Park and there was this crowd gathered outside this sort of Georgian building, which was inset off the street. And there was sort of a gate entrance and a gate exit and stuff like that and uh, sure we were kind of half piddly we didn't know what was going on here at all and um, so we're walking up and there were these lads in black jackets with no necks standing with their <laughs> arms crossed in front of them and stuff like that so the, the boss of Midlands at the time was Joe Yerkes and Joe you know was American so I wonder what's going on there sure he says I, I'll ask and uh, so I walked past the crowd and I walked straight across the courtyard and I walked up to one of these guys and I said how, how are you getting on this is um, Albert here from Tullamore I said well, what's going on here and he, he kind of looked at me as if I had two heads and then he looked to his right and at the gable end this you know four story gable end projected on was a picture of Britney Spears and apparently she'd made some road film back in 2003 and this was this was right. um, you know, the, the premiere was on that night and this was the after party. And with that, the black SUVs that had been in front of the Mandarin Hotel pulled in mm-hmm. and the doors opened. And literally from from like from me away to you, who hops out with Brittany? And she turns around and she does this big wave to the crowd. And, go, and then she turns around and there's just me and this bouncer kind of standing there. You know? And I said, uh, how are you getting on? And she goes, hi. And she just walked in the door. And I came back out and Joe said, what was all that about? And I said, it was Britney Spears. I said, I was just talking to her. Yeah, where are your dad got ass? So off we went in down to the Ritz, which was closed. And uh, after that, we went back into work the following day. Yeah. Yeah. That's my Britney Spears story. Well, she's getting married again. That's the reason she's in the news today. In fact, it's gutting for any teenager, uh, any fellow from the 1990s. All of our crushes are just getting married. Brittany, uh, Kelly Brook. It's been a bad week for you, Will. <laughs> 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 and I'm unavailable now. I'm off the market. Oh, have you anyway, seen you know. his wife, Alex? She's hot. She is, isn't she? Yeah. Kudos there, Albert. Yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Nice save. Uh, shall we get down to some of the other news, maybe more the more pressing news of the week? 
And earlier we heard from Tom Parlin of the Construction Industry Federation. He's an awfully man and he was describing the various rates of inflation in building materials. And uh, economists were saying this week how even if there's more supply coming onto the market, more and more houses for sale, it's not going to drive prices down because those houses are going to be more expensive to build. Um, cost of living is a huge issue as well. Uh, wages not moving in line with that. Uh, so there's the argument, well, how are people going to afford the massive mortgages? What's your take on this as a journalist, Claire? Well, the first thing I'd say is that anywhere you seem to be driving anywhere around the country, there seems to be constantly houses being built. There are houses in production all over the country. Um, I, you know, from, from a news point of view, um, it's it seems to be almost scary to be back in the early, you know the early 2000s and and the talk of people not being able to afford houses and already hearing people about making enormous uh, decisions financial decisions to get themselves on the property ladder and you know when we were young uh, I, what I remember my mother always saying to us because it was in the 80s and you know things were tough and mortgage rates were astronomical uh, double digit mortgage rates uh, and she's saying you have to get your piece of paper under your arm so you can afford to buy a house and the news all the time was about um, the cost of housing but particularly about people who are in negative equity uh, and in the UK um, and that that really ingrained itself in my mind even though I was quite young but hearing these phrases and people talking about these awful situations that they were in and then we had that all over again in the 2000s and you from a news perspective and having been there and listening to people and covering the stories of the ghost estates and the torment that people were in, I, I, I just don't understand how we are back here again with talk of astronomical mortgages and yeah. people being stuck And there are, there are forces competing against each other. So today we were reporting on the European Central Bank raising its rates in July by a quarter of 1% and then another rate hike guaranteed for September, possibly half a percent on that occasion. We don't know yet. So that makes mortgages less affordable. You'll be paying more interest. But then if the cost of building is going up, the normal rule of affordability doesn't apply. It's not like builders can slash the costs to make a house more attractive to a purchaser. So it's hard to predict what's going to happen, uh, whether prices will fall, whether prices will go up. What's your take on it, Michelle? Yeah, sorry. Now, the signal went in and out a little, so I hope I haven't missed too much of that. But yeah, I think it's, from my point of view, I just really feel for people who are stuck in it. it I, I certainly don't have an easy solution to suggest, but um, when you're looking at it, not just the, the house buyers, but the builders themselves, whose materials are more expensive and it's harder to get um, staff and keep staff as well. So there seems to be pressure coming from all sides. But again, as Claire mentioned, you're still... Yeah, seeing building happening everywhere. So I'm not sure what they are, uh, how many, you know, or how quickly it'll come back around to resolution. But it does seem to be a little bit of a time warp or a, a throwback to those days of the boom, but everything else not keeping up with it. So, you know, this sort of apprehension maybe about, a, a, a you know, another bust on the horizon as well. So it's it's very um, worrying for people. Albert, you built a house not so long ago. So you've some recent experience of this. I imagine you're 
glad your timing was as it is and, and not now. Yeah, actually at the time, uh, prices were beginning to go up. Now, we, we built back in 2017 and I remember that we were selling our old house and I think we, we kind of took 30 grand less in our old house because costs were going to go up 30 to 50 grand or stuff like that mm. whatever right so it was fine and we were fortunate and we you know you know this you know we you know we were in our 50s and you know we'd gone through houses and stuff like that or whatever else but I think at the moment there are so many different factors influencing mm. prices um, and and I think there's a fair bit of gouging if I'm honest going on as well you know because like you know you have two factors in terms of building you have the, you have the materials and then the cost of labour and the cost of labour seems to have just gone exponentially so high um, I think I was telling I had a friend on to me yesterday who lives in Richview in Kilkenny which is a nice kind of estate four bedroom kind of detached houses uh, and he was been wanting to uh, they've been wanting to do up their en suite for the past kind of year and they had a quote uh, now they were supplying all the materials right so they were buying all the sanitary wear and the tiles and all that kind of stuff so it was just purely labour and they had a quotation of five and a half thousand quid uh, to do you know this ensuite extension you know, taking down a wall and moving a wall and all this kind of stuff and uh, but the builder was just never coming you know I'd be there next Tuesday didn't say what Tuesday and all that kind of stuff so eventually got fed up and said look go away if you're, that couldn't be slow it's going to be a couple of years time and they got another builder in a friend of their son uh, or an next friend I think after years <laughs> today and um, and they came in and they were just quoting again for labour and he, he was spitting fire yesterday he said the exact same job uh, the guy was quoting him nine and a half grand for, for labour like Mm, so it just doesn't mm, make mm. sense and I, and I remember back even in the old days of the boom when we were in the mall I was trying to get a wall built and this guy came in and he said that'll be three grand and I said break it down for me and he said yeah it'll be three grand to get the job done and I said it's a stud wall with a you know with a door in it I said how much did the labour cost he said if you want the job done it's three grand no discussion end no discussion mm-hmm. whatever else and it was a, a very good builder thing in the daily came in looked at it and he said yeah we can do that bang it up plaster paint all that 1500 quid it's just ridiculous um, personal experience at the moment we're trying to do a little bit of, of an extension work I had to send texts out to builders yesterday that I contacted three or four weeks ago who promised they'd be in that weekend to have a look at it and they haven't come here so yeah, well, not to get listeners overly irate but we've seen on Brian Clunan's appearances here the DIY slot a shift in questions where Previously, it might have been about spraying weeds or whatever, the routine stuff, to I need to fix a tap. I've tried several plumbers. None are coming. How do I do this? And more and more of that. How do I do some of these basic tasks that builders, plumbers, carpenters are no longer interested in? Because, again, they've turned a living and they're making more money doing bigger jobs elsewhere. But the other side, Will, is that we have so many people who are not making enough money at the moment. Uh, And what we had during the boom was uh, there was a sense that everybody had lots and lots and lots of money Mm. and we don't have that now. And when when people are going, we had uh, Chloe Farrell, who's with us, was out doing a a Vox the other day. It was really interesting to hear for that piece we did on fuel prices. People talking about very specific decisions that they are making in their lives. They're leaving the car at home and they're walking uh, or they're not going to places they would normally have gone and they're not able to fill the tank in the way that they used to because the cost of diesel has gone so high and I was talking to somebody else recently who has a a very specific routine about how she does her shopping and she buys more or less the same things every single week Um, and she has noticed a phenomenal increase in the price of meat particularly Um, but her, her shopping list which has been more or less the same price for maybe three years you know 20% more expensive now than it was before. Mm. And you're right, there is 
an unevenness to how well people are paid. So Absolutely. if you were in hospitality during the pandemic, like you're way behind. Um, if you were in some of the service industries, you're probably doing very, very well. Um, and we're hearing, like I know the uh, Tullamore Chamber of Commerce, uh, they have their jobs fair coming up in July. Uh, we had the Leash Jobs Fair in May. Uh, construction companies, engineering companies, so many sectors just crying out for people and will pay very good money now to those individuals. Chefs, you're worth your weight in gold. Absolutely. But yet we talked in the last hour to Dimpna from the childcare facility in Ferban and those are people entrusted with our most precious, Absolutely. precious creations, our children. And they're just, you know, a few cents above minimum wage uh, because that's the industry. That's the business model. That's how little money is directed towards it. And so, we saw that at Dublin Airport as well, where people are saying, you can't expect me in the world that we're in now to live on this amount of money and put up with these conditions. And, and income is one thing, but conditions for people after the two years of lockdown that we've had, people are not tolerating kind of work conditions that they may have had to have in the, in the past. They don't want to work weekends. They want they want their time <coughs> and they value their leisure experiences. And they're not well, going the, to be they're not going to try to um, do without those for the sake of nine or ten or twelve euros an hour. Yeah, and I think a lot of people took took um, took advantage of there's a there's a huge amount of subsidised training available in the country at the moment. I mean, TUS in Athlone has mm. millions and millions of of euro to support people in learning new skills. And, you know, the, the whole role of middle management were taken out of the hospitality sector during the, the COVID crisis because uh, these guys then suddenly they were sitting back and they said, OK, I'm going to retrain. And they're now working in nine to five jobs mm. and they're working in Intel and they're working in various places. And they don't have to work weekends and stuff like that. And there's a huge shortage in their industry because of that. And it's, it's having knock-on effects. Um, and I'm curious, actually, Michelle, we heard during the lockdowns how our Artists were trying to retrain and pursue other opportunities. At the country music business, for instance, many singers went back to their roots. Um, there was the uh, carpenter, uh, the name... Robert Mazel. Robert Mazel, excuse me, yes. Robert Mazel went back to his carpentry. Uh, he's still keeping it up. Uh, another gentleman went to Aldi and became a manager in Aldi rather than uh, being on the road uh, singing. So ha- what effect has it had on the arts community, Michelle? So certainly I think there has been a lot of movement and a lot of looking to other things, but as as things have come back out into the open, there is the, so the big challenge for artists was that the, the gathering of people was the most important thing for so many artists and performers. They're, they were nothing without their audiences. So it was that challenge, really, even though that they might be able to create art at home, it, it wasn't it wasn't um, earning them a living until they could bring it back to audiences again. We're, we've seen that slow reemergence. Um, there's, I think, while people have pursued other things, they're they're keen to kind of keep up the performance as well as possible, and that is coming back. And we certainly have had a very busy schedule of events but we are finding hesitancy from audiences still and coming back and maybe that's some of the financial pressures that we've been talking about as well but i think there's Actually, um, michelle makes a very good point there. it's one michelle. of those things that you don't use it to lose it as well so that you know for for artists and performers if they're back and they're performing they really need audiences to, to kind of come and meet them there in order for them to have that um kind of trust and and um momentum to come back on tour 
mm. um, rather than just. And some of it may be affordability as well as COVID hesitancy. Well, it's, it's like, you know, she makes a very valid point in terms of audiences returning slowly. And, uh, you know, we would have had quite a lot of experience in the last number of months of, of traditionally big acts that would do big numbers, you know. So, you know, one, one of the Midlands most popular uh, entertainers is Mike Denver. And uh, Mike does a consistently great job and he's got a great following and stuff like that. Nathan Carter, you know, the top side of it, Derek Ryan, all these guys. Um, and then the, the likes of the Furies, uh, Foster and stuff like that. The audiences haven't come back to what they were before. So, like, you know, you know, Mike Denver's last gig, I think, in the Tullamore Court Hotel was brilliant. But he'd normally do north of 600 and it was 300 people. Mm. You know, um, and Foster so, and Allen and stuff, much the same. Like, So people are slow to come back up. But they, but they are and they're not. Because I was at a couple of different events recently that involved young people nieces and nephews you know relations you could not get younger people definitely younger not. people yeah. people are coming out to support their families my nieces my niece was in a musical um, from Dunamace the, the Grail Skull in Port Leash it was on in, in Dunamace Theatre you couldn't I was a little bit late I couldn't get into my seat because the place was completely jammed and every mammy and daddy and brother and sister the grannies were all out so people there, there are things that they're willing to make a sacrifice for so it may be yeah. the financial yeah. end of it maybe maybe for people that you know in terms of the discretionary income yeah and it's interesting as well just the whole ecosystem of the arts is so knitted together that it's really important for people to understand that they need to take a chance on shows as well like not just come and see johnny and mary that they know on stage mm-hmm. but if they enjoy a good play hey come to this other play cynthia is offering and trust in the quality and the entertainment value of it. And you may not know it from uh, previously, it may not be JB Keen, but it might be something just as entertaining and you'll have just as good a night out. And we want to keep our stage available to all these local performers and the Irish arts industry, um, but it's all really connected together. So it's, it's, um, it's going to be important for us to build our audiences back into all our mm-hmm. events, not just the, well, you know, the, the person you know on stage. Yes, indeed. Well, I want to ask you, the listener, is it price? Is it the cost of living and you just don't have the cash to take that night out and go to the gig, go to the play? Or is it still hesitancy because of COVID-19, the risks involved? Is it some other reason that we haven't mentioned? So straw poll on 083 30 10 103, the Midlands 103 text line powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. Just on that, well, you're making a very valid point there. The cost of going out for a night has risen dramatically. Um, most restaurants now, starters are the price of what main courses were before. Mm-hmm. Like, what's the difference between a deluxe burger now and an ordinary burger? About six euro. Mm-hmm. Do you know, it's just, mm-hmm. it's it's gone mad. Like, I mean, your 14 yeah. or 15 euro fish and chips is now 20 euro. You know, it's the cost of going out has is, is gone up dramatically. Well, have to take a quick break because we've bills to pay. And after that, I want to take a look at some of the other stories of the week, including the milestone every year. Uh, the first Wednesday, or is it the second Wednesday in June? It's usually the first Wednesday. Usually. First Wednesday. Yes, yes. And Claire, of course, in addition to being a journalist, is also a teacher. Also on the panel, Albert Fitzgerald from the Tullamore and District Rotary Club and Michelle DeForge from the Dunamay's Arts Centre in Port Leash. The Friday panel on Midlands 183 brought to you by Arrow Logistics Ireland Tullamore. Straight talking logistics solutions for all your air freight, sea freight and customs clearance needs. AORO-logistics.com Not sure if you have a logistical solution to this one. A mum is in quite a pickle this morning. Holidays are booked for next Wednesday. However, 
the passport of one of the children has yet to arrive and she cannot get answers to this and she's hoping that maybe you or somebody else listening has been in this predicament and has found a solution and if so please text on 083 30 10 103 uh, going on holidays next Wednesday passport for one of the children has yet to arrive what to do I think Claire TDs have a hotline into the passport office do they? They seem to do they seem to do but I am um and sometimes it, I, I have heard that sometimes it can be very effective. I know of somebody who contacted a TD for something that was very urgent um, and had their passport the following day when they needed it. And it was very efficient and very effective. It is a pity that we are in a world where this is how things happen. Uh, it, it shouldn't be the case that contacting a politician can speed up what should be an effective public service. If, if it's a new issue, passport is the problem. Because um, I know that uh, Stephen... Uh, his passport was out of date. Stephen's your son. Yeah, yes. yeah Stephen. Uh, and, um, but we, we sat at the kitchen table and I took him through the application and uh, we posted it the following day and two days later, the new passport arrived. A replacement one. Yeah, a replacement yeah. one. Yeah, the so replacements, replacements are very quick. quick. But if it's a new one, that's the difficulty. And there are so many politicians ringing the passport office every hour of every minute of every day. Even my own uh, brother-in-law, um, they were concerned. They were due away on holidays and they, mm. they had applied in plenty of time. But again, because of this extraordinary hold-up. So it, it's very, it's, it's a horrible feeling to be in, but fingers crossed for that. I think, I think the Valium or the gin are the only thing to keep her going in the meantime. Yeah, because or, or, it's one of those things that is entirely and completely out of your hands. Mm. You know, one of the things that we learned during the lockdown, I think, was if it's out of your control, it's out of your control. Um, yes, hopefully there's insurance in place and, <laughs> that and won't deal with disappointment. Yeah. The rest of the family going off and sending the child away to an aunt and uncle for a I, Albert, 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 Albert. Home Alone has a lot to, has a lot to <laughs> offer. No. The other big stress this week in many households was the commencement of the leaving and junior cert exams. And as a teacher, Claire, I know this is of interest to you. The feedback so far to the various papers is okay. It is. And and why it's okay and what all the students uh, are saying is that they have so much more time and they have fewer questions to answer. Uh, so they have time to plan, they have time to make better decisions, uh, they have more time to look back over things and be confident that what they're submitting is good. And you might have heard A. Bowes from um, Clannis Lee. Um, I was speaking to him last night and he was talking about the engineering paper and he said he really enjoyed it. And I said, it's unusual to hear someone say they enjoyed a paper. But what he enjoyed was the experience of being able to show what he knew, to take his time to work through the questions, to look over it at the end. And and we've had a number of students from Clannis Lee uh, College who've been talking to us about their leaving ex- cert experience in home economics in English and in engineering and each and every one of them really positive about having so much more time, having less material to stress over, fewer questions to answer and a sense of positivity and achievement. Mm. Michelle, were you following the Leaving Cert this week or were you more interested in the return of Love Island? Oh, I think the, the, the Leaving leave Cert would probably interest me more bizarrely, but um, Love Island, yeah, it looks, looks very beautiful. 
all very on the surface, which is fine and very entertaining. So it's a it's an escape. And I suppose we were expecting the good weather to kick in here and it hasn't quite. So we might as well look at tropical paradise elsewhere yes, yes. and live vicariously through that for a while until the sunshine kicks into an Irish, proper Irish summer. Here, here. Before we let you go, Michelle, anything coming up in Dunamaze that we should add to the diary? Absolutely, absolutely. And actually to help with the with the pressure on the finances, we've got some really wonderful free events. So we're really, really lucky that we can offer these subsidised events um, to families and young people from time to time, as well as um, asking people to put their hands in their pockets for tickets. But we have a really beautiful day on Saturday. Crinoon and Og is a very special celebration of creativity and young people. And we have a really beautiful live stage show, a theatre show called Luminaria, and that's at 12 o'clock and 3 o'clock and free for families to come along and enjoy. And um, as part of that day, we'll have a children's art competition winners, their artwork on the wall in the cafe. We have a brand new exhibition upstairs by amazing, amazing illustrator Paul Bulger, um, based on the hound and the, the tale of Coo Cullen. So very entertaining um, to, uh, to see that exhibition. And we've uh, the old Fort Quarter Festival coming up in a few weeks, which will be a massive yeah, event for Port Leash. One of these big community events that has been so badly missed over the mm. last few years. We're really delighted that we'll have so much daytime free entertainment and then evening gigs. Um, and again, the evening gigs help to make sure that we can provide the free yeah, no, uh, very excited about that. For families during the day. So it all is interconnected. So we'd recommend all of that. Yeah, it'll be great fun. So final word then, because very often you hear of fundraisers and then, well, how much money was raised and how does that money get spent? And well, let's give Albert the opportunity to describe the outcome of the dunk tank that Tullamore District Rotary Club had recently. Yeah, we ran a few weeks ago and, and your own uh, Sinead Hubble uh, participated and uh, I have to say she was being quite a bitch on the night of her mom. Uh, <laughs> You're only she, saying that because no, well, no. Do you know? Do you know what she did? Do you know what she did? She, she, she was brilliant and wonderful up to a certain point, and I think Dickie Harvey dunked her. You mm, know mm. Uh, the 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 look or whatever. She got out of the tank dripping wet and ran across and gave me a bear hug. <laughs> Normally you don't complain. You wouldn't on well, she was sopping wet with. And as a consequence, I was sopping with. But no, in fairness, she was absolutely brilliant. Nora Kavna, uh, Damien Kearns, all the rest of them. Over €7,000 was, was raised on the night. Uh, the cheques are actually being given out tonight ah, uh, to the uh, local Ukrainian appeal and also to Women's Aid. Uh, so thank you, everybody, for that, except Sinead Hubble. And uh, it was a brilliant night. It was great crack. Uh, Dickie Harvey was the Terminator on the night. He managed to dunk about four people, which was brilliant. But it was great crack. Uh, and uh, it's something that will be running again next year. Outdoors this time, and without Sinead Hubble. <laughs> <All right. laughs> she won't be sorry. <laughs> no, 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 indeed not. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for your time. Albert Fitzgerald from the Tullamore and District Rotary Club, Michelle DeForge from Dunhamay's Arts Centre in Port Leash, journalist and teacher Sinead O'Brien. Uh, Sinead O'Brien, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. The reason I'm going Sinead O'Brien is because Claire also produced the programme this week. Yes, thank you, thank you. And thank you for listening. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye.